1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
3: Hello, my name is Michael Johnston, and today I have Dr. Eric Sue, host and creator of Sociology of Everything podcast and lecturer of sociology in the Justice and Society Academic Unit uh, with the University of South Australia, and Katie Coveney, senior lecturer in, soci- in sociology at Lipro University. And uh, today we are coming together to talk about Sleep Frontiers Fictions Futures by Pagra Macmillan 2023. Thank you for joining me today.
2: Thanks for having us.
0: Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks.
3: So to get started, um, what brought you two together and others, authors, to uh, put this book together?
2: So there's five of us who are co-authors on the book. There's Eric and myself, and there's also Professor Simon Williams um, Dr. Mike Greeney and Professor Robert Meadows, um, all in the UK. So Simon Williams. If anybody's read anything about sociology of sleep, you might have come across Simon Simon's name before. So he's been working in this field for a long time, and I think Simon was probably the connection that brought the group of us together. We've all had an interest in sleep. We've all been working on various aspects of sleep from a sociological um, or a kind of a humanities perspective for a while, and we just kind of came together to, to talk about our mutual interests. And a few years later, the book is uh, the product of that.
3: So yeah, I think of I think of sleep almost like you know suicide in Durkheim, right? Sleep sounds like something very individual, like you get in bed at night and go to sleep by yourself or with somebody other, but uh, somebody else. But uh, uh, but it's kind of you deciding when to go to bed or not to go to bed. However, it's not, it's not right. Techno sleep um, is 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 something social, is it not?
0: Yeah, well, absolutely, is. and I should say that unlike suicide, all of us sleep, right. And it's one of those things that all of us do, uh, and we all have issues potentially with how we sleep, and we all have thoughts about how we sleep. But it's kind of curious that for much of you know the history of sociology, it was kind of left on you know on on, on the margins of the discipline, and so our interest really kind of formed you know for some of us probably about twenty years ago. Um, for some of some other of us than more recently. But we're we're, you know, I think really trying to not just to study sleep from a sociological perspective, but to develop it as a legitimate object of research across the field and across the social sciences. Uh, but yes, absolutely sleep is a social issue. And I think we could especially see this with the concept of techno sleep. Katie, did you want to maybe jump in here and kind of yeah tease that out?
2: Yeah. So so like Eric was saying, you know, sleep is one of those f- fundamental biological needs you know we all have to sleep but as sociologists we see sleep very much as something that's embedded within our social structures our interactions and especially our relationships so how our sleep has to be negotiated with others how it has to fit around the demands of our social lives our work patterns all of these things how well we sleep where we sleep when we sleep are all impacted by our relationships with other people um And in terms of techno sleep, we really see this as, you know, as we were trying to theorize how do we, how do we understand this coming together of sleep and technology, seeing technology as kind of an integral aspect of how we organize our sleep and how we do our sleep um, and how we understand sleep as well today.
3: Yeah. So Katie, what what are some of these different types of technology that, that um, you're thinking of when you say technology and its impact on sleep?
2: Oh, well, how how far back do you want to
1: go?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Let's focus on maybe even just like the last, you know, since the 2000s, right? Hmm.
2: Yeah, well, I think one of the things we start off thinking about in the book is how technology, especially around sleep science um, and kind of the birth of sleep science, and those kind of technologies of the sleep lab and sleep medicine have really influenced how we understand sleep today. You know, those technologies, that, that mm. sleep science, really um, it influences how we, how we think about sleep and how we understand our sleep. You know, we all kind of think of sleep now as being a cycle. It's broken up into these discrete stages, you know, REM sleep, the dreaming sleep, deep sleep, light sleep. So technology undoubtedly plays an underlying role in how we, you know, how we think about sleep to start with. Um, so that's kind of a foundation of where we're, we're coming from in the book. And then we start to think about um, the new technologies that are, around, that are around today that can impact on our sleep and are, are maybe changing some of those relationships that we have with our sleep. So Um, I don't know if Eric wants to elaborate.
0: Well, I was just going to say also that there's also a sense in which technology intersects with sleep in a very mundane way. So it is really interesting, very, you know, worthwhile for us to focus on, you know, things like CPAP machines, <laughs> the, you know, all the technologies that help us better understand sleep in a certain way. But just think of also like pillows, <laughs> right, or, or, or beds, alarm clocks, some very basic technologies that just kind of sit in the background of our everyday lives. But this is, these are also technological ways in which sleep is done, right? So we... Our, 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 you know, the, one of the conceits of this book is that it's we're not just talking about like electronics and digital technologies. There's a sense in which techno-sleep also encapsulates all of these other things in our, in our lives, are these artifacts and built environments. All of that somehow amounts to a type of techno-sleep.
3: Bed, uh, bedrooms are kind of even a phenomenon, right? And how houses are built and where people sleep at. Is, mm. that, is that accurate? Yes.
0: I mean, if you like, <laughs> I'm not sure if you do this, but um, anytime you go to like a museum, especially like a living museum, whether that be like a castle, especially where, you know, Katie resides, there's probably quite a few of those or these huge estates and you see like beds of yesteryear and it's like kind of amazing. Like it they were set up somewhat differently. You know and and what people did in beds and and how they slept and where they slept, and who they slept with, how sleep has become increasingly privatized in some contexts. You know th- these are the things that, as sociologists, we are intensely interested in, and that also crop up when we we're d- writing this book about techno sleep
3: even hotels are quite curious if you think about them as you know strange in our every familiar day life we uh, don't think about the person who may have slept there the the week before even the night before and uh, and how it's our own private room however it's rather public on any given day it's just you know assigned to one person at a time
2: (laughs) yeah and i think it's you know thinking about sleeping in hotels i don't know if it's just me i don't think it is (laughs) but you you can never sleep well on the first (laughs) So that sleep environment, it really impacts on you know how we're able to sleep. So where we sleep is a key thing. Yes.
3: Now we we started to talk about medicine and pharmaceutical products and and how they are used to uh, to help us sleep. So has sleep become part of this medical complex, uh, metal medical industrial complex?
2: Yeah, I think that that argument, you know, that argument has been made by people like Simon Williams, Harry Barbie as well, um, in the past, that this the medicalization of sleep works to support these multi-billion dollar industries that are attempting to sell us better sleep through through consumerism. Um, so sleeping pills, there's something that I've been studying for a long time, a particular interest of mine, and there is an undoubtedly, there's a huge market for sleeping pills globally today and we can indeed see that kind of industrial medical complex at work I think through these complex interactions between pharma industries and doctors and healthcare systems and patients um, perhaps more in the US it's more kind of more overt than in other places like the UK but I would say so.
0: And I should also mention one of the things we do in this book um, is we oftentimes make (laughs) a simple story more complex. And I think one of the things that's been happening in the sociology of sleep, especially around the medicalization of sleep, is to say that it's not just simply like this linear thing that happens, meaning like sleep is becoming more medicalized and that is it, you know? (laughs) there's been distinctions drawn about, for example, are there certain types, are there certain aspects of sleep that are becoming more medicalized, at least in terms of how they're framed in the popular news media? You know, so there's a really interesting work that Simon did with some of his colleagues uh, around how sleep is culturally represented in newspapers. And, you know, one of the things they came up with, one of the findings they came up with was the fact that, you know, there's some aspects of sleep like insomnia, which might be described in more psychological terms, but when it comes to something like snoring, it's much more medicalized, you know, it's framed more medically. So I guess really it's about having you know, a more differentiated understanding of how sleep is being medicalized. Uh, and this also kind of links to something that I know Katie has done a lot of research about, which is around the pharmaceuticalization of sleep and how pharmaceuticalization and medicalization are related, but not quite the same thing. Is that, is that right, Katie?
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm more knowledgeable knowledgeable about the UK healthcare context. So that's where most of my work has been based in, in the UK. And that's definitely something that we've been trying to kind of pull apart this pharmaceuticalization of sleep from its medicalization, in particular around insomnia. So insomnia is this kind of curious entity where it's kind of a sleep disorder but it's also a symptom of lots of other things and it's kind of a normalized thing everybody's gonna have bouts of insomnia at some point it it might be to do with what's going on in your life or um, you know related to some other medication that you're taking for example so it's really quite difficult to pin down to get that diagnosis of having insomnia in the UK and at the same time in the UK, there's this move to the de pharmaceuticalization of insomnia. So there's a lot of pressure on um, general practitioners here to not prescribe hypnotics to treat insomnia, or if they prescribe them only for really short periods of time. So, you know, there's, there's these countervailing pressures going on around what happens. And from our research, what we found was actually happening was that... Um, Practitioners, medical practitioners were still prescribing pharmaceuticals to to kind of remedy to treat insomnia, but they weren't necessarily prescribing hypnotics. They started to prescribe other things like antidepressants or antipsychotics or people started to buy over the counter medications or take antihistamines. So the pharmacology of nighttime sleep is much more varied and much more complex than you might just uh, you might think by just looking at the statistics around the prescriptions of of hypnotics.
3: Wow, that's interesting, because I'm thinking of this as being like sort of a rationalization of sleep, not trying to create a natural cycle, but instead a normalized cycle in which everybody is, well, almost disembodying sleep and being something that that is just routine, uh, almost like a machine. This is when you ought to be sleeping and this is when you ought to be awake.
2: Yeah, it's so interesting, isn't it? I think around these norms of sleep. So that's something else that we had so many, um, like long, interesting discussions about like what is normal sleep? And what are the norms? What do people think? that they should be doing and why do they think that and what are people actually doing and how is that actually quite different (laughs) sometimes so I think you know we all kind of think oh we're supposed to sleep at night time we're supposed to have this six to eight hour consolidated block of sleep and that's what normal sleep is and that's what people are trying to achieve and deviations from that are what become kind of medicalized or problematized and people are seeking remedies for but actually you know that isn't how a lot of people do sleep Um, so you know there's lots of different groups within societies that experience sleep very very differently people working night shifts all those doctors nurses cab drivers people in the hospitality industries that have to work at night their sleep's going to be really different to this imagined norm but not necessarily problematic for them
3: So this might be a good juncture to talk about how social categories like race, ethnicity, sex, gender, class, and education influence the amount and patterns in which people sleep. Uh, Are there inequities or differences from one category to the next in the sleep cycles that, that we as humans have or don't have?
0: Um, that's probably one of the core themes of the book, actually, and also arguably one of the core themes of our work, right, as sociologists who are interested in sleep. And I think sleep is like fascinating for a number of reasons. But the thing that really sticks out to me about sleep and studying it from a sociological perspective is that you aren't just looking at sleep in a vacuum you know, sleep is invariably linked and it intersects with so many other facets of our lives. So, you know, there's a way in which, yes, we are interested in sleep, but sleep is also a window into all these other interests and, and, you know, longstanding debates that people have around things like gender and race and, you know, and class. And how do we see this? I mean, just look at how sleep intersects with like Capitalism. And there's, there's been a fair work on this, and especially in terms of, of social theorizing, and you know, Simon's written this really interesting work about this is quite early on the commodification of sleep. So, in what ways is sleep being bought and sold? And all you ever need to do to see this <laughs> is just to like fly a long haul flight. And obviously, being out here in Australia, like everything pretty much is a long haul flight. Uh, but once I'm not sure why I'm telling all of this, but <laughs> once I got put you know upgraded into business class. And I just distinctly remember like peeking back to economy class and and then obviously seeing everyone else in business who had paid exorbitant amounts of money to be, you know, where they are. And then seeing these group of people who just looked wrecked, you know, it was a midnight flight. They just looked wrecked, you know, certainly crumbling off the plane, but even while, you know, we were, you know, uh, on the flight flying. And so there's a number of ways in which we can see sleep refracts and reflects social inequalities. Uh, and, and certainly this also applies to technologies. But, you know, one clear one is just like how are sleep disruptions managed, On you know, and certainly in the domestic setting. That was probably one of the early concerns of a lot of sleep sociologists, especially in the UK. So I'm thinking of people like Sarah Arbor and Rob Meadows, Jenny Hislop. They did some really interesting, fascinating research just about like who manages sleep disruptions at night and it probably won't surprise your listeners to to learn that unfortunately this is highly gendered this is a gendered practice right and so you do see differences in sleep quantity sleep quality and again all of these have to do with our social characteristics our social variables and th- you know one of the things I'll, before I kick things uh, kick things back to Katie is that you, even the idea of like having a Private place to sleep, a secure place to sleep. That's something that's unfortunately not something that we can take all for granted. You know, what does it mean to be homeless? I think it's probably not having a secure sleeping area. You know, it's it's having very tenuous sleep, having sleep that's you know in the public realm. Uh, and I, so it's it's this also studying sleep is also to some extent a political matter. We are talking about the politics. You know, the very consequential politics of how people sleep, how sleep is framed, and how sleep is experienced.
1: I don't know about you, but I'm very busy, and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including calorie-smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Katie, what are your thoughts?
2: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I completely agree and like Eric, I really see this this idea of inequalities has been at the crux of, of the book and as our work um, as sociologists and I'll say a couple of things from my my particular interests. So very much around the gendered um, division of labour during the night and night care work that as as i said you probably won't be surprised tends to fall to women rather than men um so that's something i'm interested in in my current work as well um so we we talk about this a bit in the book um and i talk about this in so for one chapter of the book i tracked my own sleep and i wanted to see how that felt and what it meant to me and one of the most um kind of important findings I think and became apparent quite quickly was that my sleep is not my own I have young children I have three young children um, and my sleep is constantly disturbed by the care those care needs those care requirements for for my children um, so it's you know I my app might be telling me oh you need to be in bed by this time and this time set in sleep routine you need to get better quality sleep don't drink Caffeine after this time, and it will improve you. I'm thinking, look, I can't do any of that. I've got three kids; they're not going to let me. You know, if they need blue the at midnight, they're going to come and wake me up. And at the time I was writing the book, I had a, a young baby who was obviously still needing to be fed in the night and and things like that. So, so that care work at night, uh, that gender division of labour, and that care work is such an important factor. on the quality of of sleep on the amount of sleep that men and women can get um it's not saying that no men do care work at night i'm sure eric might have something to (laughs) to add on that respect and my husband certainly does get up and help care for the children but when i was on maternity leave we divided that between us as he was going to work and i i would be the one who would wake up and look after the kids and i think um What's interesting to me now as well with the ageing populations that we have is that lots of people have older relatives as well who they also care for during the night, whether they live with them or not. So that could be a phone call from a care home or, you know, um, from a, a worried relative with dementia who's woken up during the night. So there's all those kind of aspects to it as well, that that kind of... Um, so, you know, it might be referred to as the third shift. You know, we do the, first shift, the second shift with the childcare, and the third shift, the emotional labor of trying to, you know, care for everybody during the nighttime as well. Um, and then on the other side of it, another thing I'm really interested in is the impact of chronic illness on sleep. So, the, you know, there's lots of people out there with sleep disorders that's one thing but then there's all these other health conditions as well that really can impact on nighttime sleep so i mentioned dementia but also cancer is another big one and cancer medications can really impact on sleep and sleep quality pain is a huge a huge source of sleep disruption so there's there's all these kind of inequalities there that that build up um and i think that that nighttime impact and then the the knock-on impact that has for people during the daytime of not having that quality sleep at night, as well, is uh, is, is a definite source of of social inequality.
0: And so, as you can kind of see, uh, <laughs> there's like no facet of our lives sleep doesn't touch. Right? I mean, you just you pick another topic, you pick another concept, pick another theory, sleep kind of has something to do with it, or at least there is the potential for that to happen. And so, there's I think a concerted effort then to not just kind of ring-fence sleep as this, you know, this very isolated part of our lives that can be studied and it's kind of a subfield in sociology, right? There's a sense in which, you know, sleep kind of can factor into any aspect of of, of social life. And so because of that, uh, you know, that makes the topic very rich for analysis, for further investigation. And certainly when it comes to techno-sleep, I mean, it, I should say one thing it's the beginning of a conversation and certainly not the end of one right we're trying really to just capture some of the key insights we think might get this conversation going in a in a productive direction but as we you know note at the in the the last section of the book yeah i mean it, it it's just ripe for being further you know extended to be more critically scrutinized yeah, it's just a it's a we, we just thought that this is a very exciting concept, exciting topic to uh, to put out there. and um, yeah, we we're looking for forward people to engage with our work.
3: Yeah, you know, I as an urban and an environmental sociologist and uh, even thinking about uh, economic sociology, thinking about how um, cities that never sleep, like Las Vegas and how they play with lighting, but even your uh, own local restaurant, like an Applebee's, I worked there for six years prior to um, going on to college and then um, making my way into academia eventually. But uh, they, they mess with the lighting to kind of, Signals as to you've been here for a really long time and lighting going up and down, depending on the time of day to rush people in or out, uh, depending on what the uh, expectation is or or closing time at a bar when they turn the lights on and say it's time to pack up and leave Uh, kind of well, it's it's a way technology is physically uh, creating uh, an experience for the bodies that uh, are inhabiting that environment.
0: I mean, one of the early works in the sociology of sleep was Murray Melbourne's Night is Frontier. And it like puts forward a crazy idea, really, in some respects, maybe not so crazy for some people, uh, which is that um, there is the potential for the nighttime as a time for sleep to disappear, just like it's a frontier to be explored and conquered, you know. <laughs> and, you know, he he entertains the idea that one day the elements of sleep will be, you know, unbundled and made optional. So you have a kind of a sleep optional society. Now, we're obviously not going to simply just endorse that and say, yep, that's what's going to happen where no one's going to sleep anymore in the future and that's it. But we are in the book also discussing about sleep futures. I mean, do you think that's right, Katie? Like, It's a core theme of the book that we're interested in how sleep futures are in the making and they're also negotiated and contested.
2: Yeah, and I think that that idea of night as frontier is something that we do, we do draw on in the book. It's, so the frontier aspect of this and looking at some of how some of those futures that are being imagined, that kind of optionalization of sleep through technology is something that's very much present in the imaginaries about the future of sleep so um, from tech industry reports we looked at all kinds of things media reports futurists forecasting what sleep would would look like in the future and that kind of the optionalization of if we sleep and when we sleep and where we sleep and how long we sleep and condensing our sleep into shorter times and um, even you know hypersomnia, elongating our sleep for leisure. All these ideas have been able to kind of manipulate sleep at our will. These are all the imagined kind of future scenarios that we're dealing with. And like Eric said, it doesn't mean that, you know, any one of them is necessarily going to come into play and dominate, but they're all kind of there. And, you know, when, when the tech industry are interested in these things, we can imagine that actually we're going to start to see more kind of technology along these lines coming
3: into play I like the way that both of you frame this book as a uh, as not a book to put uh, techno sleep to bed per se but instead to w- awaken a conversation like let's get up and let's start talking about techno sleep it's uh, uh, it's very inviting and, and I'm glad that that was part of our conversation today um, as you know this isn't the end of the conversation but the beginning
2: yeah yeah definitely and I think you know one of the things So techno sleep, we see as this coming together of sleep and technology, but we're not arguing that everybody is now a techno sleeper or we can't escape technology. You know, on the contrary, you know, we're also interested in the in the resistance to techno sleep, the times when sleep technology relationships kind of break down or they come apart. And we think that, you know, that also can give us some really fascinating insights into what it is we actually value about sleep collectively so where sleep belongs in the rhythms of our daily lives so often you know we think about sleep as being this biological process something that's natural and spontaneous universal you know our periodic escape from the demands of our waking lives where we can switch off and technological encroachment into that space for some of us can be quite an unwelcome thing you know we don't want that we want to keep this this kind of private time for ourselves um so that this techno sleep for some people might represent a sort of an alienation from what it is we actually love about sleep so that's another you know another aspect of the conversation that we are we're really interested in having
3: excellent well unfortunately uh we've come to uh the end of our time today however I, I I really want to know where is this research going from here. Um, is there going to be a techno sleep part two? Is it going to advance into individual books or? Um, yeah, Katie, what what are your plans from from here forth? So
2: um one of the avenues i'm really interested in exploring further is around kind of um, care and sleep and how technology might factor into that so that's something i'm lo- looking forward to i'm thinking about it now thinking about those next those next steps down that around the rhythms of our everyday life and how technology can can help or hinder those hmm. caring relationships
3: to yeah and
2: one of
0: the things you know i discuss in the book um, is just how um, yeah, like what entities are thought to sleep is kind of an open question. I mean, obviously, we're interested in human sleep in this, uh, in this book, but <laughs> I mean, the human beings aren't the only ones, the only beings in the world that sleep. And so in what ways is there a technological element to all of this? And so um, what we spend some time unpacking in the book is how like, technological devices might sleep. Right? So obviously, people put devices into sleep mode. But this also led me to think about how sleep can also be understood not just in literal terms but in b- metaphorical terms. And so one of the things I'm looking then to explore is that you know, way of which we can understand sleep in a, as a multiple – you know object uh, and, and what ways is is can sleep be understood from many different angles uh, as constituting different things uh, through the prisma metaphor and, and how might that also help us understand how sleep is experienced and constructed um, you know in, in by indigenous groups, for example, like in New Zealand so that's one of the projects that I'm working on at the moment. Um, and I just think you know it's there's just so much really that you can kind of unravel. From the from this book. And so I, I'm not going to say that we're going to be able to cover it all, but we hope that it is a worthwhile thing for your listeners to engage with. Uh, because, you know, it's, it's just as hopefully you've gathered from this conversation a very rich topic.
3: Yes, one that uh, one that's going to take a while. It's going to be one of those reads that you just continue reading and getting a new perspective and get a new perspective each time uh, we uh, we open your book because there there's so many ways in which it can be applied and depending on what I'm working on at any given time, I may see it from a different perspective. That's so. The hope. <laughs> so, so so thank you for this very rich and uh, uh, helpful book and for the conversation today that we had. Thank you. Thank you very much. This is another episode of New Books in Sociology. Thank you for your time today.
2: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
1: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen The Bride and Groom?